Take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. Most of us have never had the privilege of meeting a king or a queen or the president of the United States and personally shake their hand, let alone have any kind of conversation with them. It's an opportunity that is rarely afforded uh, the average uh, person in this world. But at times, people have the opportunity to get into the presence of kings and queens and, and presidents, and uh, they're just regular citizens uh, and uh, even have conversations. I read a story about a young man that lived in Australia back in the early 2000s. And he's a preacher now, but uh, back in the 2000s, the Queen was coming to Australia for some sort of Commonwealth event of some kind. But uh, there was to be a special service in a church in downtown Sydney. And uh, they were needing somebody of, uh, or it was a descendant uh, of the island of Malta. And this young man's family, even though they were uh, living in Australia, they were from the the island of Malta. And so they chose this young man to uh, carry in uh, some sort of mace, the the, the scepter type thing that uh, the queen had with her for special occasions. And he was able to bring this in uh, for a service there in Australia. And he can remember before the event happened, before he was going to go in and march in and carry this in, and the queen eventually walk into this building and whatever, uh, that uh, they lined up all the people that were part of the ceremony. And all of them had name tags on. And they all had names, you know, assistant counselor to somebody and whatever else. And this young man being a a 10-year-old was just simply James, and I can't remember his last name, but it was James and had nothing as a title underneath. And so when the queen was coming through initially to see all these individuals and to talk with them, uh, she had the prime minister of England with her, John Major, and he was going through and introducing all these people that were really important. And he came to him and saw there was nothing on the name tag and he just kind of went on. And the queen actually bypassed the young man and then came back and just said, well, you know, thank you for being here and thank you for being a part of this and, and took the time to talk to him. And he said, as, as, as if that wasn't enough, he said, we got through the whole ceremony and there was a reception afterwards and we were able to be there in line waiting for the queen uh, to go through again. And he said, I was standing with famous entertainers and whatever else. And and uh, the like, and the queen came through, and of course, you're not allowed to touch the queen or even make an attempt to shake her hand unless she does that, and there's all sorts of protocol and the like. And uh, she came through the line and just merely was uh, talking to individuals and shaking their hands and the like, and uh, he said the queen got to him and goes, oh, you're here again. She goes, you did such a great job doing all of this, and he was just shocked at this. And then the queen stopped and actually sneezed. And he said, she actually sneezed and some of it got on my hand. He said, I didn't wash my hand for a while after that occasion. But he said, the queen talked to me. 
and remembered who I was and uh, what I had done. And she said, thank you so much for doing this and asked me a couple of other questions and then went on down the line with all these other people. And he just said, it was amazing to this day. He says, it didn't change my status in society any. He goes, I'm just merely a preacher now and whatever. But he goes, I had one day an opportunity to meet the queen. He goes, I'll never forget that. You have an event like this where someone gets to meet a king and they really shouldn't be there. It's even shocking that they were able for a second to be in the presence of the king, let alone talk to the king. And this is that story that we are familiar with when it comes to the life of Joseph, where he comes and interprets the dreams of a king. But what we sometimes miss in this story is that uh, there is uh, several things going on in this, that God's at work, but God's also giving an opportunity for one of his faithful servants, one of his faithful followers to shine, to, to not shine for their own personal aggrandizement, uh, but to shine and reflect upon God and be able to do that. And if we were to give a theme to this whole passage, this lengthy passage that we've gone through, it would just simply be this, is that the faithful believer is ready to reveal God's plan to the nations. Okay, The faithful believer is ready to reveal God's plans to the nations. And what you have in the first part of this, in verses 1 through 13, is that God prepares the opportunity to reveal his plan. God's the one who's being glorified here. It's not Joseph. God's the one who's doing this. And you say, well, what goes on here? Well, you have a series of dreams that take place. Dreams start the story. Joseph, where we first meet him, he has dreams about his family bowing to him eventually. He's had impact by the fact that he's interpreted the butler's and the baker's dreams. And now here you have this king who has these dreams that he has. And God is just simply confirming that he's the one that's in control. You are talking about a Pharaoh who at this time was the ruler of the world. Everyone came to Egypt because it was the place where things were going on, things were being built, uh, all sorts of knowledge and wisdom were coming through Egypt. You came to Egypt and this man, Pharaoh, is the ruler of the world. He's used to giving commands and messages to other people. But in the middle of one night, he's the one who receives the messages. He's not dictating it. God is the one who gives them this. And God's the one who is able to shake a pharaoh, a ruler of a world, in the middle of the night. As you see this dream and these two dreams, it's fairly simplistic what goes on here. You have seven cows that are in the Nile, and this has been a common thing. The Nile River was, even today, is uh, the source of pretty much everything that uh, Egypt has. That water that flows through there, it's for the crops and the animals. It's the most important thing. If that Nile River is not flowing like it should, uh, the rains further uh, upriver and the mountains don't take place, uh, Egypt's in trouble. All life is connected with the Nile River. Egypt is connected to it. And so when this dream takes place, he sees the Nile River there. 
He sees these seven healthy cows uh, that are there. And then all of a sudden, he sees seven very weak, weak and sickly cows that are there. And you would expect them to graze and just enjoy that the water is there. But all of a sudden, I mean, just, you know, it's hard to imagine this. All of a sudden, the seven small, weak, uh, sickly cows eat the other ones. And you're going, that doesn't happen. You know, you're waiting for lions to eat cows or that type of thing. But the other cows are eating uh, each other. And you're going, and Pharaoh wakes up in the middle of the night. I mean, he has his dream, connect to the Nile River animals which are a part of the 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 livelihood of the nation of egypt and all of a sudden the shocking thing that happens at the end of this dream where you have something that doesn't eat something else doing that he falls back asleep and he sees uh this wheat uh, that is raised up on uh, the the ground uh, or out of the ground seven ears of wheat that are there and they're healthy next to seven ears of wheat that have been blasted by the east wind. In fact, the grain, it sounds like, has been blasted right out of uh, the grain that's there. It has nothing to provide, no sustenance. It's weak and burned out. And then all of a sudden, something else that happens that's unexpected, you have the wheat eating other wheat. And he wakes up in a start at the end. Obviously for him, the dreams have some similarities to them, but the shocking nature of this and the vividness of them uh, seem to be important. And realize this, that God did communicate through dreams. This is how he communicates uh, some thousand years later when he communicates to one Nebuchadnezzar and you have a Daniel, a Jew, who's in the court of Nebuchadnezzar who interprets dreams. God communicated oftentimes with unsaved individuals through their dreams. Not to say that every dream they had was important or anything like that, but there were certain times where they realized this is unusual what I saw. And so what happens is that you have the, the, the king in verse uh, number nine, uh, Pharaoh, calling together uh, individuals uh, and asking uh, for individuals to come together and to explain to him. And nobody can do it. As we said uh, in uh, other occasions that uh, there were individuals who had books that uh, they could interpret with and that, and we talked about that last week where they would go, oh, if this happens and this happens, it means this is going to happen. And if this happens, when they hear these, uh, the double dreams that were here that had similarities and the like, they had nothing to go on. And so that caused some real concern in the court because we already know that if Pharaoh is unhappy, bad things happen. You go, how do you know that? We had the previous story where he's unhappy with a baker and butler and one of them is okay afterwards and one of them loses his head. So if Pharaoh's unhappy, everybody in the court's in trouble. And it's at this point that suddenly you have uh, the remembrance that takes place. This chief butler who had been a part of this uh, suddenly begins to recall things that he had promised. Verse 9, I do remember my faults this day. Pharaoh was wroth with his servants and put me in the ward of the captain's guard's house. And we dreamed a dream. Verse 12, there was with us a young man, a Hebrew servant to the captain of the guard. We told him and he interpreted to us our dreams. To each man according to his uh, dream he did interpret. And the things that he said came to pass. And he just simply goes, I remember this person who can interpret dreams and he's accurate. 
It's not that he makes mistakes. Uh, He had this right. And, And this is rather ironic because sometimes God has a divine forgetting that takes place in individuals' lives. You sometimes go, well, maybe that's why I forget things all the time. It's for for some nobler purpose. God sometimes has people forget things because if you think about what had happened, if the chief butler had come back to the Pharaoh after he'd been replaced by his job and then just said, hey, there's somebody who can interpret dreams. He's in the the prison. Pharaoh probably would have been like, I really don't care. I got enough people here that can interpret dreams and the like. I don't need another person. I don't need a foreigner coming in and telling me all these things. I really don't care. Thanks for the story. All right, let's get on with life. But it's at the time of God's uh, working out that the Pharaoh has this dream. The butler suddenly remembers in the right time, there's a person who can interpret these dreams. And sure enough, he remembers this, but you go, it's because he suddenly remembered. The fact is, is no, uh, it's because God reminds him. And he remembers and tells Pharaoh. It's at this point that the change in Joseph's life takes place. Verse 14 is that point. It, it's been downhill. Down, 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 down. The providential relocations that Joseph keeps getting, the accommodations keep getting worse from our perspective. It's at this point, verse 14, that you have a providential relocation that's upward. In verse number 14, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon, and he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came into Pharaoh. You have to understand that if you've seen pictures and drawings of these Egyptians, uh, they usually had the top of their head shaved. They usually had their face shaved. They might have had some sort of fake beard goatee type thing on their chin. They wore makeup. Okay, so they did all of that. And here you have Joseph who's been in prison. Most of the people from Asia, which is where uh, Joseph was from, uh, would have worn beards and the like for him to appear in the presence of the king. They got to get him out of the prison, shave him, shave his hair off, and then uh, perhaps do some uh, highlighting and the like, uh, give him some garments that would be okay to enter into the presence of this Pharaoh. And he's brought in. And what you find here is that the faithful believer magnifies God to those that do not know him. Because when he gets called up here, here's the statement that is made in verse number uh, 15. I have dreamed a dream. There is none that can interpret it. I have heard said of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it's not me. I mean, this would have been his time to go, yep, I did it. I've done it before. No. His immediate response, I mean, without thinking, his immediate response is, it's not in me, but as you see there in verse number 16, God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. And you go, what do you mean by peace? Uh, He's going to settle you. He's going to stabilize you. This is for your good. Uh, What God is about to tell you is for your good your benefit. This isn't that God's going to judge you. He's trying to give you warning for your benefit so that you can be prepared. But what you find in Joseph that even though he has gone through all of these difficulties, and we looked at it last week, he is still looking to God. When he suddenly has opportunity to be in the most important place in the land, where at times 
Let's understand this. At times we might feel like, oh, they don't need to hear about our God or about our Savior and about our Jesus. What does Joseph do in the first response that he has? There's nothing important in me, but there is a God who can. A God who is able to do these things. Joseph has sold himself to be a believer through the worst of circumstances right into the most impressive of circumstances that he still faithfully looks to his God without fail. Still does it. And when he gets and hears this dream, and we didn't read through this part, but it's the same thing as before. Verse 25, Joseph said unto Pharaoh, the dream of Pharaoh is one. God hath showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. So what do you have here? Joseph simply goes, okay, I can't interpret it. There's a God in heaven who can. But here's the dream. The dream that you've received, God's telling you, Pharaoh, God is the ruler of kings of, uh, king of kings and lord of lords. He is that. He's telling you what he's about to do. You're not going to stop him, but he's telling you what he's about to do. You go through this and he says, uh, this is uh, the dream of Pharaoh is one. They come together uh, that they are the same thing. That this is a sure thing that is going to happen. Verse 28, this thing which I have spoken unto Pharaoh, what God is about to do, he showeth unto Pharaoh, behold, there come seven deers of plenty. The fact is, is what he says, is that this is going to be a true thing. It's repeated twice. You go, why? I've thought about this when you think about the statements of Jesus. When he gets ready to start off, he says, verily, verily, or truly, truly. You go, why did he say verily, verily? Uh, in that culture, the understanding was if it was doubled, it was going to happen. It was true. There was no, nothing to get around it. Well, you have two dreams here that just kind of emphasize the same fact. Seven good cows, seven good ears of corn, seven good years. Seven weak cows, sickly cows, seven blasted uh, ears of wheat, seven bad years. And what that means is simply this, is that you're going to have seven years of plenty in God's plan and seven years of famine in God's plan. And, Joe, or excuse me, and Joseph is able to give advice to the king because he says, this is what's going to happen. You're facing seven years of good, seven years of bad. Verse number uh, 32, that dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice. It is because the thing is established, it's sure, by God. And God will shortly bring it to pass. You can't stop God. It's going to happen. So here's what happens. Verse number 34, let Pharaoh do this. Or excuse me, verse 33. Now therefore let Pharaoh look out a man discreet, wise. Set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land and take up a fifth part of the land of Egypt in seven plenteous years. I mean, he simply suggests this. You go and find somebody who can administrate this that's going to be one who is wise, he's got skill in living, he's discerning, he can make decisions. You put him in charge. You get him in the first seven years to gather 20% of what the people have in the plenty, put it in the storehouses, and you'll be ready for the seven years of famine. You do this, find an individual like this, and they will uh, be able to handle this so that 
look at the end of verse number 36, that the land perish not through famine. You find an individual like this, you've been warned by God, you take care of these things, and you're not going to have your, your country destroyed. You're not going to lose your country. No, it's going to survive. So in the midst of this, as you read through the statement, as we, I read through it this morning, you have Joseph throughout going, God's going to do this, and God's going to do this, and God's revealing this to you, and God's making these things known. He is magnifying to a world leader what God's plans are. He's doing what believers should be doing from generation to generation. Revealing what God's plans are to the nations, whether they be kings or slaves, whether they be rulers or, well, sickly and unknown. God has a plan that he is carrying out amongst the nations. In this case, it's the immediate welfare of the nation of Egypt. But then you see in verses 37 to 57, just simply this, that God places the faithful believer in a position to take part in the salvation of nations. What happens for Joseph is that God places him in the best position that he can be in to help rescue this nation. God puts him there. I mean, Pharaoh recognizes this when he talks to his servants. Verse 38, he said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? If we want to find someone who's, who's got the mind of God, who's communicating these things, this is the person. This person's got the knowledge of God. They know who God's like. They've got God in them. We should have them the one be, uh, be the one in charge. And so what happens is this, is that he's put in charge of everything under his employer. I mean, God's been preparing Joseph for this throughout. He goes to Potiphar's house. What happens? He starts off as a lowly slave, but by the time he's done, he's the one in charge of the household. The only person that's higher than him is Potiphar. He's responsible for all that goes on in that household. The only thing that Potiphar is concerned about in that household is what is he getting for, me, getting for supper? You get to the second re relocation for uh, Joseph and he's stuck in a prison and he comes in the lowliest of prisoners. But by the time he's done, he's the assistant to the captain of the guard. He's over all the prisoners and the captain of the guard doesn't worry about what's going on in the prison because Joseph's taking care of it. And then suddenly God takes him and puts him in second in command under the Pharaoh. Everything's his responsibility in the land of Egypt. And he's just responsible to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, you can do whatever you need to do. Get this accomplished. Now I'm going to take a side note here. Realize this, that God oftentimes puts you in positions and responsibilities and opportunities to do what? To prepare you for something yet future. Schooling that you go through, jobs that you have, families that you're a part of. God places you in those to get you ready for greater things that he has for you. Greater responsibilities, greater opportunities. He's been doing this. Joseph's an example of this. God does this. You may be frustrated with some of the places you've been in life and had to work through and, and been a part of, the families you've been a part of, and you might need to look at it and just simply say this, God was preparing me for something later on. 
God was getting me ready for that. Joseph is ready to be under somebody else but take up the responsibilities. You go, why? Because God has set him in a spot like this twice already. This is the third time. And you go, is Joseph going to do this faithfully? And the answer is absolutely because he's done it twice this way. He's put in this position of power. He's even given a new name. Look at verse 45. He's given the name, Pharaoh called Joseph's name, Zaphnath Paneah. Say that 15 times in a row. You say, what does that mean? It just simply means this. By, by Egyptian way of saying this, their statement here is this, that Joseph's name means God speaks and lives. God speaks and lives. I mean, this is an amazing statement for an individual, a pharaoh, who himself considered himself to be a god. He was the descendant of Ra, the sun god, which was the chief god of Egypt because the sun was always out every day. And that was the deciding factor in the life of the Egyptians in their mind. And so Ra was the chief god and pharaoh oh, was the descendant of Ra. And here you have this individual who's had multiple gods that has been a part of his life and his culture. And he, in one conversation with Joseph and recognizing who he is and what he's like, goes, there is a God who speaks and lives. He acknowledges it. He understands that. Now, how well he understands it, uh, I don't know. But he's got an opportunity to be with Joseph for a number of years. Just like Daniel had many years with Nebuchadnezzar, and you read the beginning statements of Nebuchadnezzar, and you're not really sure he understands exactly what God's doing. But you get to Daniel chapter 4, and by that point, he's going, here's the one true God, the exalted God of all the nations and all the people. Joseph has had the opportunity to go to a pagan world leader and make God known, and that leader has been impacted by that. That God speaks and God lives. And so you go through this story where Joseph gets married and you find in verse number 46, it gives us a small detail that's important. Uh, it says that he's 30 years old. Say, why is that important? Because it's taken him 13 years to get to this point. He spent 13 years a slave, a prisoner, after God had told him, you're going to have family bow down to you and you're going to rule over them. He had had that communication given to him by revelation and dreams from God. And yet he's gone 13 years in some of the most horrible circumstances. And despite all that, he's still faithfully following God. God. He's not given this up. We talked last week that a person that is of faith will maintain their faith even though it looks like they've been, what? Forgotten. Abandoned. Joseph here is one who is now in success. You go, now he's, he's achieved the top of what he could possibly achieve. Uh, you know what sometimes happens there? When people get success, they forget their background they forget what god got them there who got them there how they got there 
but not for Joseph. You go, how do you know that? Well, you have this whole story where Joseph is successfully gathering all this stuff from the nation of Egypt. They've got plenty, more than abundance. They don't even know what to do. And so he's collecting 20% of this abundance uh, for, well, not a non-rainy day, for a famine coming up. But in the midst of all this success, there's this little detail that Moses throws in here by the Holy Spirit. You go, what's that? Well, look at verse 50. And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of the famine came, which Ashenath, the daughter of Potpharos, priest of On, bare unto him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. And you say, what's the interpretation? What does that name mean? It just simply means this. For God hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. I mean, he's naming his child not with an Egyptian name. He's actually naming it with a Hebrew name. And he's just simply saying this. My God has caused me to forget those years of pain and agony. My God's been good to me. It's a, it's a, a statement of praise. God has gotten me to the point where I'm past that. I'm past those difficulties I've had. I'm past these things. He's brought me to a good place. And the name of his son is praise to God for where God had gotten him to. He's past that bitterness that he might have had and the difficulty he may have had with family. God's gotten him to that point. But then you see in the second name, verse 52, the name of the second called he Ephraim. And you say, why? For God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. It's like the psalmist, he prepares a table in the presence of mine enemies. He's saying here, what God has done is given me children in a place where I was afflicted, where I probably would never have, I mean, think about this, as a slave and as a prisoner, he would never have children. Now here he is, God has blessed him with a family. God's allowed him to be fruitful and multiply. He's allowed to have children beyond him to be able to carry on the praises of God. And he just simply says, God has given me fullness. So even in Joseph's success, he doesn't forget God. He doesn't go, well, look at who I am. We see by the naming of his children that he's still reflecting praise upon his God for what God does, how God impacts his life, how God is doing things in his life. And he's giving him praise. And you say, I don't know that I could do that. God is a good God all the time. In the worst of seasons and the most successful of times for us, God is still there. He's worthy of our praise in the most difficult times. He's worthy of our praise when things seem to be going well. And that is oftentimes the hardest time to give praise to God is when things are going well. And Joseph is praising God. Now you get to the end of the story here. That seven years of Plenteous goes uh, down and all of a sudden you have famine over all of the earth. And it makes very clear, you look at those last uh, few verses there, the word all, verse 54, 55, 56, 57, all of the land of Egypt and all of the world and all of these things. You've got a universal problem. Things are now running out across the globe. And you say, well, who brought this bad time? It's God. 
And you go, why did he do that? You go, how could God be so cruel as to bring a famine upon people? And what you don't understand is that behind the scenes, God is working all things out for his promised people. We forget the fact that God to Abraham said, your family is going to go down and dwell in the land of Egypt for 430 years, and they're going to be there. Well, how do you get them there? Well, God uses something from a human perspective as a horrible thing, a famine, difficulty for people to be able to get his promised people to where they need to be at. And they're going to be right where they need to be at, when they need to be there. And God's going to be the one who gets the glory, even for a famine that brings people to where they need to be at. We've been looking at the book of Job and for us uh, on Wednesdays, and it's been hard for us to kind of handle the fact that there are things that we don't understand and why would God do something that's so mean and so cruel and so horrible to Job? And what we don't know is that God is working behind the scenes to accomplish certain things. He's proving things to a fallen angel. He's having a fallen angel learn some things through the life of Job, the misery that Job goes through, and Job still follows his God, teaches the devil a lesson. But understand this, Job was never told why. Never in the story is he ever told why. He goes through the difficulties that he went through, but in the end, what do you find Job doing? He's still clinging to his God. We've gone through the, the first chapter in Job chapter 3 on Wednesdays, and the, the statement there is that Job is crying out to God, why, why, why? He's still clinging to his God. He's magnifying his God because he's going to the one he knows is in control, who is doing things behind the scenes. He's trying to figure out why. That's not really the question that needs to be answered, but he's still trying to find that out. But he's still going to his God and going, God is the one in control, and I'm going to go and find out why certain things are going on. So when we look at the life of Joseph, he's gone through horrible circumstances, and our, our whole thing might be, why would God do something like that? God's a horrible God. No, God is moving his pieces to where he needs to get them at, and this is his way of doing it. And gets Joseph right where he needs to be at. And then he has plenty, and you go, oh, well, God's happy. And then you have this famine, you go, how could God possibly do this? Why would he do something like this? And what we don't know about this whole situation is that God is using this to get his whole plan worked out, to get his children down to Egypt. God is a good God. God uses good circumstances and he uses horrible circumstances. And what we find in Joseph's life is that at the end of his life, he's going to tell his brothers, you meant this for evil. But what is he going to say? But God meant it for good. And so when we see this story and look through it, we just simply go, okay, here we have a faithful believer that's ready to do and reveal who God is, and he sometimes does it to people that you would think would never even pay attention to it. He reveals God's plan to a Pharaoh, who that Pharaoh actually comes to a knowledge of God. He reveals the plans to the nations, and he's not much different than what we should be doing as modern believers in God. 
Because are we not called to be the same kind of people who believe that there's a good God in heaven who sent His Son to die for us and that He's got a plan for the future of all those people? And we've got that revealed in the Word. He's got some that He wants to go to glory. He's got some that He says, listen, if they will not uh, listen, they will go to an eternity in hell. And you go, so what ought I to do? You ought to follow that God through good and bad circumstances. He's given you so much. He's going to give you so much in glory that you don't deserve But our responsibility was uh, simply this, is to go and, whether it be before kings or slaves, we're to proclaim what God has as far as His plan, what He's done for mankind. I think of this as when Jesus was talking to His disciples and they were going out initially on their first, uh, uh, first opportunities to go out on their own to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And he simply says to them, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep amidst the wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. To do what? To bear witness before them and the Gentiles, the nations. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you're to say, for what you are to say will be given unto you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Do you realize there are times where you are going to be perhaps called before individuals and you're like, I don't know what to say to them. I don't know what to tell them. But you're a follower of God, a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Him. And you go, I don't know what to say. If you have those opportunities and you just simply say, Lord, I don't know what to say. It's in those times the Lord gives you the right words. You say, why? It's the Holy Spirit that does that. That's in you, that dwells in you as a believer in Jesus Christ. And you may be called before kings, governors. You say, did that ever happen in the New Testament? Have you read the book of Acts? You ever hear the names Felix, Agrippa, people like that, Herod, kings, some of them hating God and loving their own own selves, uh, narcissists and the like. They had no concern for anyone else. But when they're confronted with an individual believer who's faithfully following God, whether it takes them through shipwreck and beatings and other things, they still, when they appear in the presence of kings, they glorify and magnify their God. And you say, did they think about what they were going to say beforehand? They might have, but there are times where they are inspired by certain movements and things that go on in the midst of them talking to kings that they say things that convict them. And so we as believers also have a faithful responsibility or as faithful believers will be given opportunities to reveal God's plan to the nations, whether it's kings or queens, whether it's average, everyday human beings just like you, you're going to have opportunities. So be like Joseph, called up before kings, magnifying as God. You going to work with co-workers throughout the week, you're magnifying your God. And he'll give you the words if you're honestly asking and seeking for it. He'll give you the right words, the right time to communicate to them so that they can know what God's plans are for them. 
that they need a Savior, that they need a relationship with God. And so, for Joseph, we have an example of both good and bad times. A person who magnifies God to the nations. We ought to be doing the same in good times and bad times with all people revealing our God and His plans to the nations. And we do it faithfully. Lord, we thank You for the testimony of Joseph. These Old Testament passages are given to us as examples and to admonish us that there is hope. Uh, Romans 15 tells us that we can uh, do the things that we need to do because it's gone on before. And with Joseph, we give, are given an example of a person who has a unique opportunity to speak to the ruler of the world. And yet he still magnifies and glorifies his God. Whatever situation we're put in, with whoever we may talk to, Lord, help us as followers and believers of Jesus Christ reflect our Savior in our words to those that we come across. You may give us grand opportunities like what Joseph had, but most of us will have average everyday uh, activities in life, but we still have the same responsibility to reflect and show Jesus Christ. Lord, may we do that well. Lord, there may be one that's here today that has no purpose in life, has no direction in life. It's because they have no relationship to you. Lord, they need the Savior. They need the Son who died for them on the tree to pay for their sins. They will have uh, no hope of life eternal unless they understand what's been revealed in your word that they need a Savior, a Rescuer, a Deliverer, and His name's Jesus. So Lord, today, if there's someone like that, we pray You'd work in their hearts. May they become convinced of their need of Jesus Christ and that they put their faith and trust in Him and be changed for eternity. Lord, we love You. Thank You for the testimony of Your Word, the testimony of faithful followers who have gone before. And we praise You in Your Son's name. Amen.